The rule of thumb, of course, is if you're eating a healthy plant-based diet, then the normal homeostasis mechanisms kick in, meaning your body senses that it needs more calories, it makes you hungry, you eat more food. And where the system fails is with overly calorically dense foods, fatty foods, animal products have no fiber, so they kind of defy the system. But if you're eating normal, high fiber, uh, plant-based foods, the system works out pretty well, even if you don't count calories. Most people don't even think about things like that, and so you're, you're going straight into the details. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen or a view or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Be sure to check us out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on YouTube and on Facebook and right here on Apple Podcast. And wherever shows are available on Tuesday and Thursday, because my friend, we are raising your nutrition IQ five days a week. And helping to raise those nutrition IQs today is the one and only Dr. Neil Barnard. He is here answering questions from you, the exam roomies. And right at the top, the question on everyone's mind, how many calories should you be eating in a day? He's got an interesting answer for that. So stay tuned. Also on tap, questions about nuts. How many nuts should you be eating every day if you're worried about eating too much fat? And what is the best way to eat if you work an overnight shift? You know, your schedule's a little bit off, so how do you do it if you're working those graveyard shifts? And is it healthy or even potentially dangerous to eat a predominantly raw diet? We're going to hear what Dr. Barnard has to say about that, plus a ton of other questions will be answered on the show today. And also on the program today, COVID-19. Here in Washington, D.C. and really around the country, health officials are prioritizing vaccines for those with underlying conditions, those who are at most risk. And while vaccine rollout is extremely important, there is a word of caution regarding not sweeping those underlying conditions under the rug once the shot goes in the arm. Dr. Venita Raman, she is back here today to explain how a healthy diet is perhaps the best prescription for a healthier future and how that can work in conjunction with the vaccine to get us back on track to return to normal. But first, your questions and Dr. Barnard's answers as we open up the doctor's mailbag right here on the Exam Room Podcast. Dr. Barnard, I want to start with the top question of the day, and it comes to us from a viewer on Instagram wondering how many calories they should be eating in a day. Well, first of all, let me praise you for your sophistication because most people don't even think about things like that. Um, and so you're, you're going in straight into the details. Most people consume, at least in America, somewhere in the range of 1,800 to 2,000 calories in a day. 
However, let me encourage you not to uh, strive for a particular goal because it really depends, first of all, on how big you are. A bigger person needs more calories uh, and also how active you are. If you're running a marathon, you're going to be burning twice as many calories or more than, uh, compared with if you are sedentary. So the rule of thumb, of course, is if you're eating a healthy plant-based diet, then the normal homeostasis mechanisms kick in, meaning your body senses that it needs more calories, it makes you hungry, you eat more food. And where the system fails is with overly calorically dense uh, foods, uh, fatty foods, animal products have no fiber, so they kind of defy the system. But if you're eating normal, high-fiber, uh, plant-based foods, system works out pretty well, even if you don't count calories. Well, let's go ahead and flip that question over on okay. its head because we have a great follow-up here from Jana. She wants to know, how many calories should a person eat if they're underweight? Do the same principles apply there? Yeah, the same principles do apply. Um, so you'll want to be eating vegetables and fruits, whole grains and beans. And if you eat a normal amount of them and you're not restricting at all, in other words, you're not trying to lose weight, um, here I'm thinking about certain eating disorders where people are, are restricting to, to keep their weight down out of fear of, of excessive weight gain and that kind of thing. Uh, but assuming that's not you, uh, your normal hunger drive will, will bring you up to where you should be. And you might be thinking, well, am I underweight or, or am I not? Go online and search for a BMI calculator, your body mass index. It's not perfect, but it's a pretty good way of gauging if your weight is where it should be. And so on a BMI calculator, you plug in your height and you plug in your weight and it'll say uh, what your body mass index is. And if it's between 18 and a half and 25, that's the weight range where you're going to be in pretty good shape with regard to long-term likelihood of staying healthy. Um, so that, that's really where you want to be. Now, I implicit in your question is I'm trying to gain more weight. And what you will discover is if there is more fat in your diet even if it's extra virgin olive oil or, or less healthy kinds of fats. The fats are the ones that are going to cause the weight gain the most rapidly. So nuts and seeds and guacamole uh, are the things that tend to fatten people up. Before you jump in, though, and think, hooray, that's what I'm going to do, and I'll eat these foods, I'll gain weight, the weight might come on where you don't especially want it, as opposed to being um, an even kind of weight gain. So um, the ba basic rule of thumb, Eat uh, when you're hungry, stop eating when you're full, and if everything you're eating is beans, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, your weight will take care of itself. I think that we're on a roll here uh, with these kinds of questions. Vicki here, you, you mentioned nuts and then she just, matter of fact, popped in. She wants to know, she's watching us uh, on Instagram. Is there a limit to the amount of nuts that we should be eating in a day in terms of saturated fat? Yeah, 37.5 nuts per day. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm playing with you, Chuck. Um, okay, uh, nuts. Luckily, most nuts they do have a, a more fat in them um, than say vegetables or fruits. So we limit nuts, particularly for people who are trying to reverse their diabetes or lose weight. And the reason is, as you know, uh, with diabetes, we want to get the fat out of the muscle and liver cells. When you do that, insulin sensitivity comes back. If you pack fat into those cells, your insulin sensitivity is harmed. Um, and so for those folks who are, who are struggling with diabetes, we keep the nuts and things out of the diet. And, and obviously all the animal products go too. Um, for people who are trying to lose weight, 
they'll discover that going vegan is great, but they'll want to also keep the nuts and the guacamole and the oils in general to a bare minimum. Now, let's say you don't have diabetes, you're young and you're, you're reasonably thin and you're feeling okay. Uh, how much can you do nut-wise? I'll tell you, I think there's sort of a good rule of thumb, a little arbitrary, but not bad. And that's maybe about an ounce per day of nuts. What is an ounce? An ounce is the palm of your hand before you reach the fingers. So you pour the almonds, walnuts, cashews into the palm of your hand. Once it hits your fingers, stop. Um, and then the next suggestion is don't eat that. Because if you do, you'll fill your hand again and nuts are kind of addicting. So instead of eating it, crumble it up and put it on your oatmeal or put it on your salad and use nuts as a flavoring or as an ingredient. And that way you'll get the vitamin E that they have. That's good uh, without being so likely to overdose on them, which will happen if you're using them as a snack food on their own. So I would say for a healthy person who's not trying to reverse diabetes or lose weight, an ounce a day is not a bad thing. Yeah, oh, man, but I'm telling you, nuts can be a dangerous thing in my house, uh, especially the dry roasted, unsalted, plain old fashioned peanut. I yeah. love those things. And it's so hard to limit it to just one ounce a day. What did you, you have? You said it. You said it. And, and, and the smokehouse people, they have figured out how to drive, you know, people's nut desires into stratosphere so yeah you got to be super careful with those things it, man it's a it's a real thing um before we get to this next question dr barnard i just want to take a second to say thank you to jesse this is jesse's question and the work that she's doing right now as an icu nurse is more important than ever so jesse thank you so very much for what it is that you're doing and thank you very much for joining us here today with that said her question is is there an optimal way to eat if i'm working overnight my schedule is 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Okay. Um, the, well, first of all, let me echo what Chuck just said. Is thank you for, for doing that work that you're doing. Um, it really depends a little bit on if this is a one-time thing where you work weekend nights and the rest of the time you're on days or if you're on permanent nights. The reason that I make a distinction is if, if you're on permanent nights, you're going to really want to adjust your schedule. So it's just like a day job, only it happens when it's dark outside. So you've got to pick uh, times to eat that are regular for you. If it's an unusual kind of thing for you where it's just every other weekend or something like that, you might find it most easy to stay to your daytime schedule. Um, stick with it that way and just get through the night as best uh, as best you can w without regard to trying to change your di diurnal rhythm for such a short period of time. Question now from Elliot, uh, wondering about the magic of cholesterol. Stay with me here. Here it goes. His question is, I know a very low-fat vegan diet can unclog arteries, but where does that cholesterol go once it's cleaned out? It's pulling a Houdini here. <laughs> so what did your body do with all the cholesterol that it's removing? Um, okay, this will not be on the test. Uh, but what your body does is it finds cholesterol particles and it removes them and it carries them off uh, to be disposed, just like other things that are in your body. So your body has uh, particles called lipoproteins um, that will carry uh, cholesterol away and it will be disposed. It goes back to the liver and it's metabolized and reused. Um, cholesterol is a, is a funny thing. Uh, it gets us into tr tremendous trouble if you got too much of it. Uh, it will lead to atherosclerosis, that means heart disease, that means strokes, other problems. Uh, but at the same time, cholesterol is used by your body to make hormones, 
cell membranes, makes vitamin D out of cholesterol. So your body will take that cholesterol and use it for what it's intended for, as opposed to uh, the things where it'll cause problems. Next question comes to us from LJ. I'm sorry, we're going to go to Candace here. Is keto a healthy way to lose weight with diabetes? Uh, if not, what diet is? Okay, um, a healthy diet for diabetes is a low-fat, completely plant-based diet. And as we've described on, on this show and uh, and on uh, other podcasts that Chuck and I have done together, uh, what you're doing with a, a vegan diet, meaning no animal products, is you're eliminating all of the animal fat. And that'll, that, along with keeping vegetable oils really low, does something in your body that other guys don't do. It starts to remove the fat it's been building up in your muscle and liver cells. And that fat, that fat in your muscle and liver cells is what causes your body to not respond well to insulin. Get that fat out and your body responds better. And sometimes diabetes even goes away. Now, ketogenic diets, they've been, they're popular for people uh, for a few weeks and then they get frustrated with them in many cases and they abandon them. Um, and abandoning them is a good thing. We don't recommend ketogenic diets at all. And here, here's why. Uh, they're based on this idea that if you take out virtually all of the carbohydrate from your diet, so you're not eating any fruit anymore, you're not eating beans, you're not eating whole grains, um, you're not eating any starchy vegetables, you're going to lose weight is the theory. And that's true because most of what you eat are the things I just mentioned and they're gone. So you tend to lose weight. Um, and if you're not presenting any normal glucose to your body, your body um, starts to make something called ketones that seem to reduce the appetite. Swell. So people who do this over the short run, they tend to lose some weight. Over the long run, they don't actually lose any more weight than other diets. And here's what's bad, is that over the long run, there's something that seems to change on a more ongoing basis. And that's that your cholesterol level gets worse. Specifically, LDL cholesterol or bad cholesterol tends to go up with these diets. You don't want that. If you've got diabetes, this is going to sound a little bit harsh, but how diabetes kills a person. It's not through a high blood sugar usually. It's by cardiovascular disease. So it increases the risk of a heart attack or increases the risk of a stroke or of kidney damage uh, by, by affecting the arteries. You don't want to have your cholesterol level rise. That, that's exactly uh, the opposite of what you want. And that's what these diets unfortunately often do. And even looking out at 12 months, 24 months on these diets, the cholesterol levels stay high. For many, many people. So don't go near a, a ketogenic diet would be my, my suggestion. Instead, go to a healthy plant-based diet and you'll see lots and lots of resources on how to do that at pcrm.org. Great response there. And in it, you mentioned two things that Debbie is wondering about, diabetes and starchy food. She writes, I am a type two diabetic and I'm feeling like I'm brainwashed not to eat these starchy foods. Are they okay? Yes, they are okay. Um, there are healthy starchy foods, and there are some that are not so healthy, but in, in the healthy category, beans, starchy, typical starchy vegetables like sweet potatoes and things are fine. Now, there are a starchy donut, not your best choice, uh, but grains and beans and vegetables and fruits are the foods that you want to eat. How do we know that? Um, back almost 20 years ago, the National Institutes of Health funded our research team here at the Physicians Committee to do a head-to-head -head test of a healthy, low-fat vegan diet, comparing that to a more conventional diabetes diet for people who had type 2 diabetes. And the vegan diet was dramatically better. Why? Because 
type 2 diabetes starts as fat builds up in the liver cells and in the muscle cells. That stops your insulin from working. We didn't know that back a generation ago. We thought, well, gee, uh, maybe I'm eating too much sugar. Maybe that's what caused it. No, the problem is that the fat builds up inside the cells. And as it builds up, the insulin doesn't work anymore. So on a vegan diet, how much animal fat is there? There's none. And if you keep the oils low, you get your insulin, insulin sensitivity back. It's the best way to go. And as a bonus, it's also the way to baby your arteries. So whether it's the big arteries to your heart, the arteries to your kidneys, the arteries to the brain, or, or think about those tiny little blood vessels in the back of your eye, or the tiny little blood vessels in the kidneys, you want to baby those blood vessels. And a vegan diet doesn't have any cholesterol in it. It doesn't have any animal fat in it. And with this, a person with type 2 diabetes can A, live a normal life, and B, dramatically reduce the likelihood that their life would ever be cut short by any of these complications. All right, now let's get to LJ's question. Mm -hmm. uh, she is saying uh, menopause and a vegan diet. What should or shouldn't a menopausal woman be eating? Okay, um, if you don't mind, uh, at the risk of sounding a little self-promotional, I wrote a book on this topic called Your Body in Balance. And the reason that I wrote Your Body in Balance is because I was struck by the fact that hormonal conditions are everywhere. We've been talking about one, diabetes. The insulin hormone is not doing its thing. Um, in menopause, if you've got hot flashes, what does that mean? That means that the ovaries, which used to be producing estrogens, um, have gone on strike basically, or they've retired. And so your amount of estrogen is falling and you're having the, the, the results of it. So what, what happens multiple times throughout the day, uh, the blood vessels in your skin suddenly widen out. They, it's called vasodilation. And that's just like a radiator being opened up. And so you feel as hot on the outside as you are inside your core temperature. That's a hot flash. Doesn't last too long, but uh, when it's done, then you've got chills. And if it happens at night, it's gonna disrupt your sleep. And you're gonna think this is just horrible. Will this ever end? Um, so uh, there are a couple of things to, to think about here. And you'll see more about this in your body in balance if you'd like to have a look at it. Thing one, a researcher uh, uh, from Canada, years ago, went to Japan and started interviewing Japanese women. Their diet was not completely vegan, but it was, um, at that time, very predominantly plant-based. Lots of rice, lots of vegetables, not much meat, really no cheese or ice cream to speak of. And they really didn't have hot flashes. Other countries, China, uh, rural Mexico, where the diet was mostly plant-based, relatively little hot flashes, but if they would westernize, bring in the steak, bring in the chicken, bring in the cheese, the hot flashes would start to come in. So there's something about a plant-based diet that seems to help. Second thing, soybeans. Uh, when women consume a fair amount of soybeans, it turns out that hot flashes are helped as well. It doesn't seem to help everybody, but it helps a lot of people. Um, so we have actually recently been putting this to the test in a randomized trial here at the Physicians Committee. If you would like to try to do the same, three steps. Number one, no animal products. And, and just try, if, if this is new for you, don't make a long-term commitment. Just do it for two, three months, say eight, 12 weeks. No animal products. Keep oils really low and have about a half a cup of cooked soybeans every day. That's not a lot. Pressure cook them on a Sunday, uh, apportion them out in little like individual Ziploc bags and have about a half a cup each day and just track your hot flashes as the days go by. If you want to, you can, after you cook them, you can roast them, throw them in the oven and a baking sheet uh, lined with parchment, 
350 degrees for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, something like that. And just use them as your snack food. The combination of a plant-based diet and the added soybeans for many women seems to help their hot flashes enormously. And if you give it a try, let us know how it goes. Next question is, uh, I think it's it's a clever way to ask probably the question that vegans get asked more than any other. Uh, exam Rumi watching us right now on YouTube writes, I've heard that even though plants have all the essential amino acids, they aren't as bioavailable as animal protein. Is that true? And if so, is it something that vegans should be concerned about? Okay, well, thank you for asking that. Um, it's not something to, to think about at all. It's, it's not a problem at all. But for people who don't know what we're talking about, uh, proteins in your body, whether they're the proteins that make up your skin or the proteins that make up your muscles or the proteins that are used to make hormones, all proteins are built from what are called amino acids. Those are the, the building blocks. They're kind of like individual beads that join together to make uh, a necklace. And that necklace is the, the protein chain. Now, you need the right number of beads, and you need all the, the right uh, variety of them, and some of them are called essential amino acids. Here's the point. Plants have all the essential amino acids. Now, you'll see a little bit different makeup in, say, rice compared to beans, compared to broccoli, but most plants have all of the essential amino acids, and a healthy plant-based diet of even a minimal variety of plant foods brings all of them to you. So, no, it's not something to think about at all. Most people get far more protein than they need, and you are not going to run protein deficient. If you're eating just a normal amount of food, and it's a variety of plant-based foods, don't worry about it. Not a problem. You know what, Dr. Berner? We might have a professional athlete with us here today. William on Instagram uh, sent in a question, wanting to know, should professional cyclists take iron supplements? Oh, neat question. Uh, good to hear from you, William. Uh, no, uh, I wouldn't take iron supplements unless your doctor suggests, recommends that you do. Um, now, but you're, you're kind of thinking right, uh, that athletes often do run low in iron compared to other people. And you'll see this, um, let's say a, a woman is now running, she's training for marathons and whatever, and she's, she's, uh, she's running low and her doctor says, good heavens, you know, we're going to put you on, uh, on an iron supplement. Um, the reason I don't recommend iron supplementation for, for anyone as a routine uh, without testing uh, is because iron is toxic. Iron increases the risk of heart problems. It increases the risk of brain disease or it's associated with Alzheimer's disease. So like a lot of other metals, copper is another one, zinc is another one. Um, your body wants a little bit, but it does not want too much. What do you do? Um, if you see your doctor and your doctor says you are anemic, you're not making enough uh, red blood cells, the doctor has to learn why. And the doctor will do some pretty easy tests, typically, to, to discover the source. And if you happen to be low in iron, then the doctor will talk about eating the right foods, like green leafy vegetables and beans, to make sure you're getting adequate iron. Now, if you're a man and you're not having any monthly uh, menstrual blood loss, obviously, um, the likelihood of being iron deficient really pretty low. For women, a little bit higher. Um, but nobody really should be supplementing iron unless the doctor says you actually need to supplement because you're low because the risks outweigh the benefit. All right. Uh, really quick before we get to this next question, uh, yes or no, you need some fat in your diet. Yes, you do. Okay. Then this question from Dino is an interesting one. Wants to know, is it healthy to eat a zero added fat diet? Uh, okay. Well, now 
added fat is different from sort of the intrinsic fats. If, if you take uh -huh. a, take, yes, take a sprig of broccoli, send it to a lab, and you wouldn't think there's any fat on there and you didn't add any. You didn't all butter up your broccoli before sending it to the lab. But they're going to tell you, you know what? That broccoli is maybe 7 or 8% fat as a percentage of its calories. There are intrinsic fats in broccoli and spinach and all the green leafy vegetables. There are traces of them in beans, traces of them in whole grains. Even brown rice, about maybe 5% fat as a percentage of its calories. Um, what's that fat? Uh, the alpha-linolenic acid that is the, the sort of the fundamental omega-3 is found in those green leafy vegetables. There's not a lot, but proportionate to the total fat content of those foods, it's uh, a substantial proportion. And so that's fine. But you asked about added fats. So that's drizzling the olive oil on your bread or something like that. No, there's, there's no need for that at all. Uh, okay, so zero added fat diet. Let's ask about another interesting diet. This one comes from Bill wanting to know whether or not there are any dangers to your health if you eat a predominantly raw diet. You still include some cooked foods, especially starchy foods, but still a predominantly raw diet. He wants to know whether or not that's a healthy decision. Yeah, I, th I, think, I think it's a, um, a great thing to explore. Um, and let me plead a little bit of ignorance here because I don't think we know the exact right answer on this. And I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, I am quite convinced that we didn't evolve along with Sterno on the planet. Um, in other words, we weren't cooking foods until in the kind of historically, relatively recently. Um, I mean, obviously people have been cooking for a very long period of time, but the other great apes, the other animals don't cook food and, and we didn't either early in, a, in our evolution. Um, and so you would think, well, we ought to do well on raw foods, and um, true enough. But the problem is, I don't know which those foods are. Um, if you look at the foods, say, that our cousins eat, chimpanzees or gorillas, they're quite different from the foods that are available to you in Omaha. Um, we uh, presumably started out our sojourn on Earth in Africa, probably Eastern Africa. And if you look at the foods that people might be eating in, say, North America, they're different foods. Uh, take a tomato, take a peanut. These are foods that are North American foods, Central American foods. They're not African foods at all. So yes, I think raw food is a good idea, but I have to confess, I don't know which foods they really are, um, but you can certainly explore them. You can add them to your diet. And the one thing I would encourage you to do is to still continue to make sure you get good, complete nutrition, have a variety of foods, eat enough foods to make sure you can maintain your weight, and do take supplemental vitamin B12 if you need it for healthy nerves and healthy blood, and you're not going to get it um, if you're not supplementing it or having um, fortified foods. And, you know, we can go on from there with, with other steps, but th those are the main things. Let's go ahead and take that question about the raw diet. Do a 180 on this one as well. We have a follow-up from someone wondering whether an exclusively cooked diet is a healthy option. Um, yeah, you can do fine that way. Um, and for some people in, in some extremes uh, uh, on the planet, it's going to be pretty hard for them to get fresh foods. But to tell you the truth, I suggest that the more you do have uncooked uh, raw foods in your diet, I'm talking about leafy greens and fruits and so forth. I think that's really a good thing and not something you would want to omit. But there are people who live a long time, uh, much of their life without having much in the way of raw foods, and they generally do well. Rules still apply. Vegan, minimize the fats. Don't forget your B12. 
And we have time for a few more questions. So if there's something on your mind that you would like to ask Dr. Barnard, go ahead and post that in the comments or the chat box. And again, tweet it to us using that hashtag exam room live. Here's another popular question. Uh, this is from someone wondering whether it's possible to take too much B12. Maybe, uh, great question. And that, that's really a very current question. I, I, if you had asked me that two years ago, I would have said, nah, B12, if you have too much B12, you just excrete the excess, no problem. That may be true. But after, when was this? Maybe about 18 months ago, something like that, uh, a paper came out looking at people over the long run who had extra high B12 levels. And they didn't seem to do so well. They had higher mortality compared to other people. So it may well be that B12 is like so many other vitamins where you need a certain amount. Not much, you need a certain amount, but you don't need a huge amount. So what does that mean in practical terms? The recommended daily allowance is 2.4 micrograms per day for adults. And so you go to the store and you think, gee, I can't find anything here that's small. Um, the multiple vitamins are, are pretty small, but all of the B12 supplements are 200 or 500 or 1,000 micrograms a day. Um, I, a thousand is, is really too much unless you have a specific medical condition where you can't absorb B12. That's what those are for. Um, there is um, a, a, some room for error because your, your body's absorption of it is going to be limited. But what I would suggest you do is to take about 100 micrograms a day, have that be your dose. And if you went to the store and you picked up something that's got 5,000 micrograms a day, uh, micrograms in a pill, um, have that eat maybe every other day, every third day um, until the bottle runs out and then go back and get a small one. Uh, don't, don't have that much every day on an ongoing basis. We will be smarter about this in two or three years, but for now it looks like it's good to get, it's essential to get the amount you need. I would, would not really overdo it. It's kind of in the same supplement type of question here. Uh, this person is wondering whether it's better to buy soy milk that's been fortified with calcium versus the non-fortified soy milk. What would your suggestion be? Uh, you can. Um, and calcium is something we all need in our diets. And green leafy vegetables are, are, of course, nature's source. In fact, that's where cows get their calcium. They're eating grass and and so forth, but hopefully we're not eating grass, but we're eating broccoli and kale and collagen. If you're eating lots of that and beans and other high calcium foods, you're gonna do fine. Uh, but if you want to have supplemental calcium, the supplement that's added to soy milk is fine. And there's one thing I like about it is that it comes with your meal. It's built into the meal. If you take a calcium supplement between meals, it seems to be increased, it seems to be associated with increased risk of kidney stones. If you take the calcium supplement with meals, it seems not to be. Um, so I, I'm, I've been a big believer in having your supplements with the meal. Why? Because then it adds to the other nutrients that are there as opposed to giving your body a huge wave of that nutrient all at one time. All right, we're gonna take two more and let's go back to the iron thing. We, we tackled it from one approach earlier in the show, but now let's look at iron from another perspective. Millions of kitchens across the world have cast iron pans in them, and someone is wondering whether or not a cast iron skillet is healthy, or should they get rid of it? Uh, no, don't get rid of it. What you should do is take that cast iron pan and think fondly of your grandma who gave that to you because this was her pan, um, and take it and put a nail in your wall and hang it up there, and remember her every time you see it. Um, don't cook with it. 
Um, and because if you do cook with it, the, the foods absorb the iron. And if you are a woman in your reproductive years, you'll have a certain amount of iron loss every month that will help you get rid of it. But if you're not in your reproductive years anymore, or if you're a man, you're accumulating excess iron from the pan, and that's gonna increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease and heart disease according to the best uh, research that we have. If you, if you use a cast iron pan once a month, probably no big deal. But if it's your go-to pan every day, you're getting more iron uh, than, you, than you really wanna be having. And let's wrap things up with one of my favorite questions. This one comes to us from Anjali, he wants to know whether frozen fruits and vegetables have as many nutrients as fresh ones. Yeah, they sure do. Um, now, when you go to the store, you look at the fresh produce and it is gorgeous and beautiful and you think there can't be anything more nutritious. And you know, that's true. Um, but if you're buying frozen and you're thinking, well, this is so much more convenient for me, uh, I can keep it on my, in my freezer for a long period of time and, and I'll use a little bit and it's not gonna go like my rubbery broccoli or rubbery spinach or something where, where you couldn't use the fresh up the right time frame. Don't feel bad about using the frozen because what do they do to, to give you frozen vegetables? They harvest them, they freeze them. Um, there's not a, a big delay. Uh, if you're getting fresh, sure it's fresh, but it came from the fields into a truck into a warehouse and finally got into the store. So there's a longer delay and there's more loss of nutrients in the process. So fresh and frozen should really be thought of as nutritionally equivalent. Every Wednesday, we do something called the Exam Room Live, and that is your best opportunity to ask the experts like Dr. Bonard your question. You can also send it to us. Send it my way, at Chuck Carroll WLC. That's good for Instagram and Twitter. Just make sure that when you send it, you include that hashtag, Exam Room Live. So much good information included in the mailbag today. It's information that can change a life and, in a lot of cases, even save a life. And we could use your help to do just that. We could use your help to get this powerful nutrition knowledge out there. And one of the easiest ways that you can help is just by taking a second to subscribe to The Exam Room on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice comment. Now, why do we ask for your help like that? It's because with each new subscription and five-star rating, the show climbs higher in the rankings. And the higher the show climbs, the easier it becomes for those who need it the most to find this information. The very information that can change and even save their life. So we have raised our nutrition IQs today, thanks to Dr. Barnard, and now it's time to pay that forward to someone else. So please go ahead and subscribe to the exam room by the Physicians Committee and leave that five-star rating. Dr. Barnard and I greatly appreciate it. Let's turn our attention now to COVID-19. 
vaccination efforts are underway, and many communities are prioritizing those most at risk, including the 42.5% of Americans who are obese. And as we look toward a healthy post-pandemic future, we must also not forget that true health can only be achieved by addressing the underlying health conditions, including obesity, that have helped to fuel this pandemic. And experts like my next guest are banging the drum now. They are sounding the alarm, working hard to ensure that that message is delivered. And it begins today by opening the eyes of those who remain blind to the food they eat. With vaccination efforts underway, many are being prioritized who are most at risk for COVID-19. And that includes the millions of Americans who are obese. But as these important efforts are underway, it's important that we not lose sight of treating these underlying conditions that have turned the pandemic into the beast that it has become. So experts like my next guest are sounding the alarm to not let efforts to get healthy and with a shot in the arm. And with that, we welcome the director of the Barnard Medical Center, the clinic director at the Barnard Medical Center, Dr. Vanita Rahman. Dr. Rahman, thanks so much for joining us here on the exam room. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Great to see you again. And let's just start right off at the top. My concern here is that when we talk about getting vaccinated, absolutely very important here, but I don't want for the efforts to stop there. I think that it's important that we do continue to address these underlying conditions because even though a person may be vaccinated against COVID-19, they're not being vaccinated against heart disease, diabetes, so many of these other comorbidities that we could talk about for days here. Yeah, so a really great point. You know, let's be very clear here. We know that with COVID-19, not everyone shares the risk equally of complications or death. Uh, those people who are obese or have comorbidities such as diabetes, high blood pressure, their risk of complications, hospitalizations, uh, intensive care, and death are much higher. And uh, while it's very important to vaccinate people, and we believe that vaccines can help greatly, we also want to address those underlying conditions and comorbidities so that people are not at high risk in the first place. And let's let's also clear this up. I'm going to ask this kind of from the point of view of a person who used to be overweight, and maybe this this would have been my thinking as well, is that, well, if it's possible to lose weight, and we know that losing weight addresses a lot of these comorbidities uh, for uh, COVID-19 that increase the risk. Well, if a person says, well, I can lose weight, then I may not have to get the vaccine. But what would your response be to that person? Yeah, well, first of all, it, it's really important if someone um, is at a higher weight for them to maintain a healthy weight. Uh, that makes a big difference in their overall health long term. But also with COVID-19, it reduces the risk of complications. Uh, as far as whether you still need the vaccine, I would still encourage it. We know that the 
in the vaccine trials that were done, the vaccine was 95% effective in preventing infection. So uh, this is a highly effective vaccine. It's been very safe in over 60,000 people that have received it to, de to date and um, with minimal side effects. So losing weight, maintaining a healthy weight, very important, but vaccination is still very important to prevent the infection. And I know that you've put together a presentation, a few slides, a slideshow, uh, as it will, a PowerPoint <laughs> presentation for those who are watching right now on Facebook and on YouTube. But Dr. Rahman, if you want to start uh, to bring that up, sure. we can go ahead and, and uh, walk people through some science. What we're going to talk about is COVID-19 and how comorbidities play a role. So one thing we have known for a long time in medicine and in public health is that diet and lifestyle are key in maintaining a healthy weight, in maintaining a healthy blood pressure, and they also regulate our blood sugar, they impact our cholesterol levels, and uh, other chronic lung diseases such as asthma or COPD. And we have known that diet and lifestyle uh, lead to these comorbidities, which in turn uh, increase the risk for heart disease and stroke. Now, heart disease and stroke don't develop overnight. These are conditions that would take decades to manifest, uh, and similarly with high blood pressure or diabetes. But what we are learning now with COVID-19 is that the impact is much more immediate. So if someone does contract COVID-19, the risk of complications and death is much greater if they do have a higher body weight or high blood pressure or diabetes or cholesterol uh, or uh, cardiovascular disease or stroke or uh, asthma or COPD. So let me share some of the research data with you. We know that in the U.S., before the COVID-19 pandemic started, we had another pandemic of obesity. And over 42% of Americans are obese, and this does not include those who are overweight. And almost 10% are severely obese. This is defined as a BMI of 40 or greater. And I'd like to share with you some research data that came out of a study that was published from Kaiser Permanente in Southern California. And uh, this is a really unique model to study obesity uh, and other risk factors and the mortality from COVID-19. So what the research team did was they looked at the health records of almost 7,000 patients that had been diagnosed with COVID-19 in the spring of 2020. And what they found was the overall mortality rate was 3%. But then they looked at obesity to see how that impacted the mortality rate. And what we see here is the relative risk. That means 3% was the overall risk but for someone whose BMI was 40 to 45, their risk was 2.68 times greater. So it's 3% times 2.68. And then for someone whose BMI was 45 or more, their risk was over fourfold greater of death from COVID-19. So we see that obesity, especially severe obesity, plays a key role in the risk. Now, one thing we also know about this infection is that males are disproportionately impacted in terms of severity. And what the research team found was that for men with a BMI of 40 to 45, they, their risk was 4.8 times greater of dying. But then if we look at men between the uh, 
with a BMI of 45 or greater, their risk is nearly tenfold higher of dying. And uh, we see this in other age groups too. So really what the study highlights is that obesity plays a key role. And let me also point out that, you know, these rates are adjusted for race, ethnicity, um, and other comorbidities. So it's really obesity that's driving these rates here. And this is another study that was published uh, about COVID-19 and comorbidities. This came out of Italy, and this was a study of 355 patients who died from COVID-19. And what the research team found was that in those who died, the mean number of comorbidities was 2.7, and only three patients did not have any comorbidities of the ones that died. So uh, comorbidities such as diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, chronic lung disease um, are playing a key role in COVID-related mortality. And this is uh, uh, data from a study um, that was also published. And what's really interesting here is if we look at people who almost 300,000 persons who contracted COVID-19 in the U.S., and if we look at the rates of hospitalizations based on whether individuals had comorbidities or not, we see that of the people that didn't have any comorbidities, their risk of hospitalization was about 7.6%. But in those with comorbidities, it climbs to nearly 45%. And then the risk of death shows similar trends. In those individuals without comorbidities, the risk of death is 1.6%, but it is 19.5% in those with comorbidities. So again, diet, lifestyle, comorbidities all go hand in hand as does COVID-related mortality. Now, uh, this is another interesting study. This was published from China. And what this research team did was they examined um, the health records of persons who were hospitalized with COVID-19 infection and who had diabetes. And then they wanted to know if someone's diabetes is well controlled as opposed to poorly controlled, does that impact their mortality? And what they found was that in those individuals with diabetes who had well-controlled diabetes, uh, meaning their blood sugar levels remained below 180, they, uh, their uh, survival rate was 98.9%. On the other hand, those individuals who had poorly controlled diabetes, meaning their blood sugar levels were frequently above 180, their risk of death climbs to 11%. So really important that people understand uh, that blood sugar management, controlling diabetes can greatly impact their, uh, their complications and survival with COVID-19. And this is where diet and lifestyle play a key role. What we know is that when we eat a low-fat plant-based diet, we can maintain a healthy weight, we can lower our blood pressure, lower our blood sugar. This is really important when we're talking about COVID-19. We can reduce our cholesterol levels and improve asthma. All of these are the comorbidities that increase the risk for uh, complications with COVID. And 
Why does this work? Why are plant-based diets healthier for us? Well, uh, for one thing, plant foods are loaded with fiber, and we know fiber helps lower our blood sugar, lower our blood pressure, lower our cholesterol. And animal foods have no fiber at all. We also know that plant-based foods have no cholesterol, whereas all animal foods, including seafood, are very high in cholesterol. And Plants are naturally low in fat, with some exceptions, whereas animal foods are generally very high in fat. And we know that the amount of fat in our diet impacts weight gain. It also raises our blood sugar levels. It's not the carbs. It's actually the fat in our food. And when we have foods that are high in fiber, low in fat, their caloric density is low. So it's much easier to maintain a healthy weight. The opposite for animal foods, which are high in fat, low in, uh, zero fiber. So the caloric density is very high. And lastly, we know that plants are loaded with antioxidants. These are substances that help our body fight inflammation, infection, whereas animal foods we know contain known carcinogens. So uh, for all these reasons, it's really important that um, people understand um, that eating a plant-based diet can help lower those the risk of those comorbidities, or if they already have them, um, improve their control and management. Let me stop sharing my screen. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's go ahead and kind of uh, use some real life examples based off of what it was that you were just talking about. Um, I, I'm I'm curious. Like, let's let's use the old me, version 1.0. Uh, when I was 420 pounds, my BMI was 69.9. So you might as well call that a BMI of 70. Based off of the data that you've seen what we know, what was in your presentation for somebody who is in that predicament with that high of a BMI, what would the most likely outcome be if they were to test positive for COVID-19? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, first of all, Chuck, uh, it's, it's amazing that you've been able to transform your health the way you have. And that's, you're just such a great inspiration for all of us. Um, uh, but as far as your question goes, with a BMI of 69.9, you know, that's in the severe obesity category. And at that BMI, someone is not just struggling with obesity, but they're likely to have diabetes or high blood pressure, or they may have already developed cardiovascular disease. And so their risk of complications goes up significantly, as we saw from some of these studies that you know, the risk is tenfold or sometimes 17-fold with higher BMIs, especially for men. So it's really important um, to manage a healthy weight. Now, of course, weight loss won't happen overnight, but this it's never been more important to eat well and, and really pay attention to nutrition. And going back to something that we kind of touched on earlier in the show is that, again, I can only speak from my own experience being overweight and thinking that um, everything, I would just grasp at anything for an excuse to continue to eat the way that I was and not have to address the issue. My fear is that people who are overweight and sadly find themselves in that predicament 
uh, will think that once they do receive that vaccine, that that is then that excuse, that green light to continue those multiple trips a day through the drive through, you know, eating those 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 calories a day, if not more, just to continue down that road because they're covered for this one thing. And I honestly don't know what it's going to take to change somebody's mentality in that regard. Because if they're not ready to change, they're not ready to change. And and to me, that that's the hardest thing. And I know that you have also lost weight yourself. I would just be curious, not necessarily from your experience as a doctor, but from somebody who's been down that road a little bit themselves, you know, what can you do to change somebody's mentality here? Yeah, you know, so tough. Uh, I think what it it really takes is figuring out what's important to us. Uh, for me, uh, it really took a health scare uh, for me to realize that I had to change the way I was eating. I had to change uh, my lifestyle in a very fundamental way. And and the reason that I wanted to do it is I wanted to be around for my kids. They were really young. I wanted to see them grow up. I wanted to see them graduate high school and go to college and get married and have their own kids. And, you know, my family is really important to me and I wanted to be around for all of that. So I think what people often have to ask themselves is why is this important to them? What it's not really about the weight. It's not really about the diabetes or blood sugar. We often get focused on the numbers, but what's really behind it? Why is this important to us? And that motivation is what will carry us through. Mm, yeah, Y is definitely the most important letter in the alphabet. So I'm glad that we addressed <laughs> addressed the Y today. Um, and then from a physician standpoint, I mean, what can be done to stress this message to patients who are struggling with their weight and and, and might have that mentality? You know, what what would you, what would you say to somebody who was in your old shoes? Yeah, you know, I would I I often sit with my patients and I ask them, "How do you feel about your health?" Uh, what are some of your goals and how can I help you? And that really starts the conversation because I think often people know that maybe things need to change or maybe they're not satisfied with their help, but they just really don't know where to start. They don't know what to believe. There's so much information out there about diet and exercise, and they're truly confused. So really helping them through the confusion really help, you know, sharing the science with them in a way that they can understand and in a way that they can implement, you know, there's no point in me putting up a great big study if it's not relevant to them or their situation, but really saying, you know, this is what the science shows, but let's talk about you and why this applies to you and how you can use this information. So really making it relevant for them is so important. And last bit of housekeeping here as we wrap this up. Um, in the study, you stated, or one of the studies that you uh, cited, I believe it was uh, the Italian study, showed that only three out of hundreds of patients had no comorbidities uh, whatsoever. Um, nonetheless, I, I think that even though it's a smaller number, it is important to stress the fact that just because you are a healthy individual does not mean that you are immune from this virus. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've known this with influenza too, Chuck, that um, every year there are young 
seemingly healthy people without any comorbidities that will contract influenza and they do die. Um, and the same is true with COVID. So no comorbidities doesn't mean no risk of catching the infection or having complications. And that's why we still need to take all the precautions that um, public health experts have been telling us about, wearing a mask, social distancing, and the vaccine is effective. It seems highly safe. Uh, so if you have the option of getting it, I would strongly urge you to consider that. We have a lot of research data showing its efficacy. And if we, we get asked a lot on the show, how, do you know of anybody who eats a whole food plant-based diet who is very healthy, uh, who has gotten COVID-19 and became sick? And the answer to that question is yes. And a matter of fact, a gentleman by the name of Eric O'Gray, another phenomenal weight loss story, both he and his wife uh, became very sick with COVID-19, had the opportunity to interview him last year about his experience, and he went into it in great detail. It's a very fascinating interview. So we'll go ahead and link off to that in the episode notes as well. Dr. Rahman, uh, as we conclude here, any final thoughts that you would like to share? Yeah, you know, uh, let me also say that we at the Physicians Committee have launched a great new program called Fight COVID-19 with Food. Um, we had two iterations of it last year. We just started a new one uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's a terrific free program, and it's specifically targeting this issue how to manage comorbidities, how to maintain a healthy weight, uh, using diet and lifestyle, really getting to the heart of the issue so that we can mitigate our risk for COVID complications. That's so great. And so, you know, I, I think that it would be so fascinating if you're able to just tell the person, you know, like, look, you may weigh this today, but if you get down to this weight, even if you do become infected, you know, your risk gets so much lower, it drops exponentially. And I think that obviously the way to get to that is with a healthy diet. So therefore, those classes are indeed absolutely critical. And you can check those out. We'll put a link up to that on PCRM.org. So go ahead and uh, keep an eye out for perhaps even a next series of classes. Dr. Vanita Rahman, thank you so very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Chuck. You can schedule an appointment to visit with Dr. Rahman or any one of the doctors or dietitians who specialize in plant-based nutrition at the Barnard Medical Center. Telemedicine visits are available. Just log on to barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 for a full list of states where services are available. 202-527-7500 or log on to barnardmedical.org. I want to just take a second really quickly because we are in the home stretch here to once again share some exciting news and ask for your help. If you enjoy this information, you find it helpful and inspiring and uplifting. We ask that you take a second and head over to Veg News and vote for the exam room as the best vegan podcast of 2020. We are so honored to be nominated as the best vegan podcast. We produced 100 shows last year and did more than 100 others 100% live on Facebook and on YouTube. And it is so humbling to know that this information, this powerful nutrition knowledge and health knowledge is being so warmly received. 
And we would love your help right now if you could take a second to vote for the show as the best vegan podcast for 2020 over at Veg News. A link to do that is included in the episode notes. I will say that the best podcast category is number 56 in their long line of nominations. But you do not have to answer all 55 that are ahead of it. You can simply click on over to 56, cast your vote for the exam room, and go about your business. But you may also want to pay close attention to category number 55 because Dr. Neil Barnard is up for an award one category before this very show. So cast your vote for him and then cast your vote for the exam room. And again, you can find a link to do just that in the episode notes. And you know, we talk a whole lot about raising nutrition IQs here on the show. And coming up in July is an opportunity to not just raise your nutrition IQ, but I mean, get a doctorate in it, a PhD a everything degree because coming up on July 15th through the 17th will be this year's International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. It will be 100% virtual again this year featuring more than 20 speakers presenting the latest science in nutrition and health. Presenters including Dr. Neil Barnard, of course, We're also going to hear about the contrasting health risks of vegetarians versus non-vegetarians and how important that is, especially right now, as we still are in the throes of a global pandemic. And then we're going to hear about how the food you're eating today can affect your memory as you get older. Brand new research on cognitive and motor skills for older adults based on their diet. Looking forward to that and so much more. July 15th through 17th online this year. You can sign up right now, pcrm.org slash ICNM. And through March 1st, there is a special early bird rate, a massive savings, just $299 right now. The rates go up after March 1st, so lock in those savings today. Just $299. Credits are available for physicians, nurses, dietitians, pharmacists, and health coaches who do attend. But if you are just a nutrition nut and want to raise your nutrition IQ in a big way, that's cool too. Head over to pcrm.org ICNM, and we will see you July 15th through 17th. And for now... That is all the time that we have, my friend. I want to say thank you one more time to Drs. Neil Barnard and Vanita Rahman for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>